Well, good morning. Um, we're continuing our series um, called One, One Another, um, in which we're talking about the One Another passages in the New Testament. Um, we've already talked about love one another and honor one another. Um, and it's all geared around this idea of how should we be moving towards each other if we have really, if we are really found in Christ, um, what should that look like in our relationships with one another? How should that change us? Um, and this morning we're going to look at what's kind of a, a disorienting passage in a lot of ways. Um, in Ephesians five fifteen to 20, Taylor read part of that already, um, in which Paul tells us to sing to one another. Um, and there's a very similar passage in Colossians 3. We'll reference that briefly, but we're mostly going to hang out in Ephesians 5 this morning. Now, to provide some context, this passage falls at the end of a longer passage in which Paul is talking about the kind of life that should result from a life in Christ. So if you've been found in Jesus, if you have truly um, understood the depths of your sin and the heights of Christ's sacrificial love for you, if you've really bought into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how should that change you? What would that look like? Um, because you're the, spirit, the, the life of a Christian is not one bubble. It's not a hobby of many different things in your life. It's a completely new way of being human. And so what does that look like in your life? And then he ends with our passage, which starts in Ephesians 5.15. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the God, the Father of everything, in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. I think that this is one of those passages that we we come to when we're reading the Bible, and we're kind of like, hmm, that's a little weird. (laughs) Sing to one another, like, maybe that's for artsy people, like... Taylor and Mariah and Jeremy and Kaz, they can do that, but I'm not that way, so I'm just, you know, I'm going to leave that. We're going on to Ephesians 6, or, um, or maybe like, maybe Paul's just being metaphorical. He's like, be joyous in your heart, and we just kind of glaze over it. Um, but not only do I think that this is relevant for everybody, I, I think that to understand what Paul is saying here gets at the heart of what he has been saying previously in this chapter. Um, and I think that Paul's giving us this instruction because he knows how our hearts work. And he knows that we are not very aware, if we're aware at all, of the things around us that shape us, that shape our hearts. Um, and he's also giving us a goal. He's saying, what you worship is what fills you. And he's, I think he's saying three things about that. Of course he's saying three things because this is a sermon. Um, he's saying what is being filled. He's saying how it's being filled in what it should be filled with. So what is being filled, how it's being filled, and what it should be filled with. Let me pray before I dive into that. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Apostle Paul, and I thank you for this letter. God, I ask that you would help us understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit, what that looks like in our lives. God, I ask that um, only your truth and only your words are are remembered here today, um, and you would bless the preaching of your word. Amen. So, what is being filled? Um, It's pointed out at the end of this Ephesians 5 passage. It's a little more clear in Colossians 3.15, where Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
And then Ephesians 5.19 says, Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Now, what is the heart? Um, we kinda, I, need, I need to do some untangling here because in, in our modern Western context, we have some preconceived notions about what I mean when I say heart. I think most of us, when you hear heart, are assuming um, that, that the heart is representative of emotions. It's representative of feelings. That um, if you operate out of your heart, you're an emotional kind of person. And you might, we might juxtapose that with the brain, right? That is kind of center of logic and reasoning. Um, and then maybe we also have an idea of a soul, which would be this kind of wispy, ethereal thing that zips off to heaven when you die. And those, those categories um, are not the way that we maybe would understand them. They're not really outlined in the Bible like that. The Bible doesn't really talk very much about your brain. It talks a lot about your heart, and it talks a little about your soul. We're not going to go there this morning. Um, but these categories, these heart-brain kind of dichotomy, that doesn't really come from the Bible. That really comes from the Enlightenment about five, in the last 500 years, which the Enlightenment um, is, was really a movement about 500 years ago um, that made popular a set of tools, which is really the scientific method. So the only things that are worth knowing, the only things that you can really know are the things that are verifiable, repeatable, observable. Um, and that is really helpful, right? We, in less than a year of a vac- of a global pandemic, there was a vaccine that was made. That's because of modern medicine. That's from the Enlightenment. We're live streaming this service to people right now. You all drove here in cars. We all have cell phones. These are products of the the scientific method in the Enlightenment that are really, really good. But what also happened was that set of tools became really popular in other spheres of life. Um, And one of the things um, that kind of happened is that we kind of subtly have learned this story that you are guided by your thoughts, that humans are thinking things, that you're rational, logical, you're guided by your brain. Um, And that, so how do you make a person a better person? How do you improve the world? Well, you teach things. You give people more information because people are logical, right? And they'll operate off the best information. And there's maybe a secular and a Christian version of how this plays out. And a secular version would be something like, we can heal uh, poverty, and we can heal crime, um, and we can he- uh, fix immorality if we can just get people educated. If you can just teach people the right information, teach them what's right, teach them what's wrong, then um, you're going to be good. Like, we will fix the world that way. Um, that might be a secular approach, but there's a Christian approach, too, that says, like, if I can get my kid to Sunday school, and they can learn that God wants them to work hard, because the Bible says to, and that they shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, and that they shouldn't cheat on tests, and all of that stuff, then they won't, right? Their youth pastor will tell them to do it, and it'll be great. Um, but, and, and all of that would be wonderful if it was true, but it, it's not true, because humans are not guided by their brains, they're guided by their hearts, and I'm saying that, and I, there's probably might be stiffening, stiffening up a little bit, because you're like, well, Jake's saying people operate out of their emotions, that they're feeling creatures, and that's not what I'm saying. When I say heart, I mean it in the way that the Bible talks about the heart, um, which is um, the, the idea of the heart really finds its roots in Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy is a really important book because it kind of sums up the first five books of the Old Testament and projects forward into the rest of the Old Testament, and the heart plays a big part throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6.5, when Moses is summarizing what happened in in Exodus at Mount Sinai, what happened when the Ten Commandments were given, and when God says, here's the most important commandment. It all comes down to this. 
that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And when Israel fails to keep God's law and they fail to keep the commandments, and the prophets come along and say, you're going to be judged and you're going to be sent to exile, um, they say that and they appeal to the thing of the heart. Your hearts have not followed God. You have turned your hearts away from the Lord. And um, so this is all throughout the Old Testament. Now, all of that say, what is the heart? The heart is a compass. The heart is a compass that guides your life towards some vision you have of what it means to live a good life. Your heart is a compass guiding you towards something that you think will satisfy you. Because at your core, we are not rational brains or emotional feelers. We could probably put everyone in this room somewhere on this um, on a continuum from more cerebral to more emotional, right? That, that's, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that you are, we are at our cores, we are lovers, that we are, look for something to satisfy us. And your heart is guiding you towards something that you believe will satisfy you. Um, and if we think about that, I, I think we'll kind of clue in on the truth of that, that, I mean, how many people, people don't get caught in sinful habits because they don't know what's right or wrong. I mean, how many people are born again, believing, gospel-believing Christians who are caught up in pornography addictions, or people who will believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who are caught up in a cycle of gossip and, and bashing people, or how many people believe in Jesus Christ and hoard all their money and don't give it away? Um, I don't think that people do that because they don't know that the Bible says, don't be an adulterer, don't be a gossip, don't be greedy. I think all of us would know that. I think most people know that. And so people don't get caught in these sinful cycles because they don't know the information. They get caught in them because their heart is still oriented towards something other than Jesus Christ that they think will satisfy them. And at our core, we are looking for something that will satisfy our deepest desire to be loved for who we are and to be seen as we truly could be. That's, that's really romance, is to be loved as you are and seen for what you could be. And this, I think, is why the Bible is full of imagery about God being like food and, and water. Um, Isaiah 55, 1-2 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. He's saying, here's this banquet, this feast, that it, it caught, it's, it's worth a lot of money, but you don't have to pay for it. Someone else has paid for it. And, and it's comparing the mercy of God to a rich feast. And then in John 4.14, 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well that whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. I, not, with whatever thirst you have, not only will I satisfy it, you'll never be thirsty again, and I'll put a spring in you. That water will come out of you. Um, people are lovers. At your core, you are not searching for the best argument or the most emotionally satisfying thing, but you are looking for something that will satisfy your entire being, satisfy your heart. The gospel is not a series of lessons about how to get to heaven. It's more like a giant glass of ice water in the desert. And so when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, he's saying, let your heart, let your compass 
Be filled with the Spirit. Let your spirit be your compass. Don't be guided towards things that are bankrupt, that are deficient. But let your heart be oriented to the only thing that can satisfy. So that's what's being filled, your heart. But Paul's not just telling you what's being filled. He's also telling us, I think, how it should be filled. Um, Because Paul says at the beginning in verses 15 and 16, Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And I think I tend to read that and gloss over, and I kind of have a Santa Claus interpretation of that, which is that, be careful, he's always watching. He knows when you sleep, he knows when you wake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake, he's watching you, so be good. Um, And not only is that not really the picture that we get of God in the Bible, obviously God does know all things. But if that were the case, I think Paul would say something more like, be careful to live not as unrighteous, but as righteous. Don't live badly, live rightly. But he doesn't say that. He says, live wisely, not as unwisely. Which is interesting because wisdom is a tr- kind of a, a, a more slippery application of truth to your specific life. Like the Bible doesn't say, when you're angry at your mother-in-law, you need to do this and this. It, it doesn't really cover that. You have to wisely apply the truths of Scripture to your life. So I think Paul is saying, be wise here, because I think he's saying, be careful about what you surround yourself with, because that is what shapes your love, it's what shapes your desires, it's what shapes your heart. Your environment and your habits are what shape you, so be careful, because the world is full of things that shape you, shape you without you even realizing it. So here's what I mean, I'm going to try to illustrate this with a couple Illustrations. I grew up in Northern Virginia mostly, a lot of places, but um, Northern Virginia for middle school and high school. We came from Germany, and I noticed um, over the course of even just like from when we got there to Northern Virginia, five years in maybe, my dad worked at the Pentagon. He drove an hour into work and an hour back, maybe longer. Some of you are probably familiar with this yourselves. But, um, and if you've ever been to Nova around commute times, it's awful. Um, everyone's on the road. It's miserable. And so my dad spent two hours in the car commuting five days a week. It's ten hours a week um, in the car, in traffic. And I noticed that there was a change in my dad's patience over that period of time. It wasn't because he didn't know patience wasn't a good thing that the Bible um, wants, but he was formed by being in the car to be less patient. My dad is not a crazy person, by the way. He didn't get out of the car and like yell at people. He's not like this isn't like road rage. But his patience with inattentive drivers and with people who were too slow or there were accidents on the road, all of that, his patience was dwindled down. Why? Not because he didn't know better, but because he spent ten hours a week in a car behind other people. That formed him. That experience shaped his heart. I'll give you another example that's not as personal. There's an author named James K.A. Smith who writes a lot about this stuff. And in a book called You Are What You Love, which is a phenomenal book that I would highly recommend, he talks about how his wife became really interested in healthy eating, not only just for her, for her own body, but to eat foods that were ethically produced. And um, he was kind of like, hey, that's great, honey, but I'm not interested. Like, I just I like meat and potatoes, whatever. Um, until, and I'm sure there's no lesson in this for um, husbands, but until his favorite writers and thinkers, he started picking up books by them who were saying the same thing, presenting the same arguments, but he was like, oh, hey, look at this, this is great. Um, And so one of those writers was a man named Wendell Berry, who's kind of this farmer theologian, he's a really good writer. Um, 
and this book that Wendell Berry wrote kind of became Smith's take-around book. Wherever he was, if he had a few minutes, he'd be reading and writing and, and underlining things. And he'd, Amen, in the margin and everything. Um, and he said one day he looked up from where he was reading this, and he was eating a hot dog in a Costco food court. And he was like, oh my gosh, I'm reading this book. I believe what's in this book. And yet here I am munching on a hot dog, which Wendell Berry would have said, that's like the sixth circle of hell. Like that is the problem. Um, and there was, there, was this, um, there was this division between what he believed to be true and what he had been doing that was actually shaping his desires, his cravings. There was a disconnect between what he believed and what his actions were. Um, and the reason is not because he didn't believe it enough. The reason is because he hadn't changed his habits, he hadn't changed his environments, he was still in the same place doing the same things. His heart was, was pointed towards a different north. Because at our core, we are drawn to, we are lovers, we're drawn to our deepest desires. What shapes us as Christians is not good theology books and good thinking, as necessary as those are. Those are really, really important. But they are not what um, shape us to be real followers of Jesus Christ. Um, if you spend every night before bed watching TV, that's shaping your heart to understand that rest is turning your brain off. And I'd say that out of some personal conviction. But if you spend an hour of your, if you spend an hour of your free time every day on Facebook, you know, reading and posting about everything that upsets you in the world and, and just um, tearing into people that maybe you know or you don't, you're training your heart to deal in, with disagreement as um, through harsh call-outs, through public um, confrontations. If every time you're bored or you're stressed, you pour yourself a big glass of wine, there's nothing wrong with drinking wine. But if you do that over and over again, what you're teaching your heart is to turn towards a substance that will satisfy you. This is one of the reasons we crave junk food. When we're having a terrible day or we've had an amazing day, we say, well, I, 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 let's get some ice cream, let's get some, let's get some pizza, whatever. We crave this food because you've shaped your stomach to want something over repetition time and again and reinforcing. You've shaped your heart to point towards something that you actually really think will satisfy you. So why be careful to be wise? The world is full of these things. The world is full of things that are shaping you, and a lot of them, we don't even realize what they're, that, that they're doing that. Um, because you can believe that Jesus Christ is the living, risen Son of God, but if, if, the, if um, your life hasn't changed, the life of sin with its sins, habits, practices, rituals, if those are still shaping you and they're unchanged, you may believe everything the Bible has to say, and yet everything in your life is pointing you in a different direction. And you end up with these bifurcated lives where you're saying, I believe this, but everything in you is shaping you in a different direction. So th- let's think to ourselves, are, that, are the habits and practices of our lives ones that shape our desires and hearts? towards Christ, or do they shape you in the same way that the rest of the world is shaped? Are you being shaped towards a life that craves rest and delight and worship in the presence of the living God, or are you being shaped towards a life that needs hurry, that needs busyness, that needs outrage? What's shaping you? What are the things that are shaping you, pointing you towards? And so now, finally, we get to um, the impetus for this entire sermon in the first place, which is singing. And this is where Paul tells us what you should be filled with. 
Paul says, don't be filled with wine, meaning the practices of the world that shape your heart easily, but instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, in hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul mentions two things here, singing and thanksgiving. What do those, those things have in common? John Kerwin, if you know him, always says giving, thanksgiving is the secret sauce to life. It's the secret sauce to life, and he's right. But why? Because giving thanks is a practice that you can submit to that orients your heart towards God. If you only give thanks when you're feeling it, when you're feeling thankful, um, that's great. You should do that. If you're feeling thankful, give thanks, absolutely. But you're, if that's the only time you give thanks, you're actually cutting off the power, the real power that thanksgiving has. Thanksgiving is most powerful when it is a practice that you submit to. I mean, if you get on your knees every morning, rain or shine, and say out loud, thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, God, for this relationship, for the roof over my head, for fill in the blank. If you do that every day, um, it will slowly, not in necessarily in that moment, make you feel better, but it will orient your heart after repetition, after repetition, after repetition to the one who gives all things. If you sit at the table every evening and you write two sentences about um, what you were grateful for that day, even if it seemed like everything went wrong, it will shape your heart after repetition, repetition to the one who's responsible for good things. It is a practice. That is the true um, power of thanksgiving. And the same is true of singing. Singing is a practice that engages your body, your stomach muscles, your vocal cords, your mouth. Um... And it, it guides you towards a vision. Now, if you sing songs, just singing by itself um, is not the whole thing, right? The lyrics, if you're just singing songs that have vulgar lyrics and are self-obsessed, then, yeah, that's going to shape your heart towards um, the content of whatever you're singing. In the same way that if you give thanks for just kind of the things that you're good at every day, you're just going to end up thank, being thankful for yourself. Um, but... Um, it's not just the content of the lyrics of music that is important. It is the practice of music itself. And some of you are super musical, sing every day. Some of you do most of your singing here at church. Um, and I want us to realize what's happening when we sing. I don't know if we all quite realize the shape of our worship service and what we're trying to do. Because the first three songs on Sunday are crafted around a call to worship, a confession of sin, and an assurance of forgiveness. We come in, we, we are called to worship, and we sing to the glory of the God that we believe is present with us in this service, is present with us in all time. We sing to that. We engage our bodies in it. And then we sing to the reality that you are a, we are broken, sinful people, um, deserving of judgment. We sing to that. And then we sing to the truth that Jesus, um, that in Jesus' sacrifice, that God is taking you to be the true version of yourself. Um, that is, those, that's just the first three songs. And then at the final two songs, we reiterate what we've heard in the word. And if we've, if we've had communion, we reiterate that in song in our bodies. Um, and we give thanks to God for his mercy. And we do that week after week after week. The power of those songs is not just in the lyrics. The power is found in submitting to them again and again and again and again and week after week after week after week. Unfortunately, a lot of us think of worship as just being a hype-up event. 
kind of, you, you, come to, you come to Sunday, you get your Jesus juice, and you hope it's enough to get through the weekend. You hope the preacher's on, you hope the, the music is on, and you hope it really fills your heart so that you can get through this week. And worship can be absolutely a very um, exciting, experiential event. I don't want to take that away. I've absolutely had those, those Sundays. But like Thanksgiving, that is, part of, that is cutting off the power, the real power of worship. The power of worship does its best when you submit to it week after week after week, adoring, confessing, assuring, adoring, confessing, assuring again and again and again, and shaping your hearts, shaping your heart towards the one thing that actually will satisfy your longings. Um, uh, Charles Williams is a, was a friend of C.S. Lewis. Um, he belonged to this little club of writers um, and thinkers called the Inklings, and um, Williams said that we should have theology that's romantic. Our theology should be romantic because in romance, we, again, we desire to be loved for who we are, seen for what we could be, and that's romance. We all want that. We all want someone who will love us for who we are, see us for who we could be, and that our, our worship should be romantic. We should be drawn. We should be drawn, attracted towards God. We should be um, just enraptured with what we really see will satisfy us. Um, and this is what our service is hopefully trying to enforce, is that, yeah, God loves you as you are. He sees you as you are, and yet he does not leave you there. He, he loves you enough to, to carry you through his blood, through, his, through Jesus Christ, into the new life. He sees you as you are, and he loves you enough to carry you to who you truly could be. Our worship service should be romantic because we are lovers. We are drawn towards the thing that will satisfy us. So are, are we being shaped by the weekly rhythms of worship? Is your heart guiding you towards the thing that will satisfy? The food that comes without price, the water that never runs out. I, I think the, this principle of your heart being shaped by song finds its fullest expression in one place, which is the cross. Because on the cross... Jesus is hanging there under the full weight of sin and evil. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those aren't Jesus' words. They come from Psalm 22, where David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this isn't just scripture generally that Jesus is repeating, because the little prescription above that psalm says, to the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David. When Jesus is being pressed in on by evil, the full weight of suffering, the full weight of iniquity, in the moment, the darkest moment that any person has ever experienced, what comes out of Jesus is worship music. It's worship songs. Pour out of Jesus on the cross. When life presses on us, what pours out of us? I can tell you that it is whatever is shaping you, whatever is shaping your heart. But Jesus had been shaped by the songs, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. And so when he was on the cross under the full weight of our iniquity, what comes out is worship music. When evil presses in on you, do you lash out in anger because you've shaped yourself through your practices to react to things that anger you publicly? When the moment of darkness comes on you, do you turn to food and drink? satisfy your longing? Have you shaped yourself to, to long for those things? When things are taken from you by evil, do you turn to your money to comfort you? Do you check your bank account and your investments? 
Or do you cling to the well that never runs out of water? Do you crave that nourishing food of Jesus Christ, the food that comes without price? Do you, do you run to the presence of Christ? These practices and rhythms and rituals I'm talking about, they're not performance. They're not performance to earn God's love. They are actually vehicles of God's grace. They are vehicles of common grace. God has made us to be people of rhythm, to be people of longing. He's made us this way. And so these rhythms and practices, he has given these to us as vehicles of his grace, as ways of distributing his grace into our life. Are we, are we availing ourselves of those, those practices? Only Christ will satisfy your heart, and only Christ provides the means of receiving satisfaction. So are we willing to put ourselves into the rhythm, into the rhythm of worship, so that our heart will be shaped, will be shaped towards the well, well that doesn't run dry? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you've designed us as creatures, uh, embodied beings, um, bodies that sing, bodies that can give thanks. God, you've made us that way very intentionally. Um, And God, we are grateful for that. And we ask that um, we submit ourselves to these practices. God, help us. uh, Help us submit to these these practices of worship, not just on Sunday, but throughout our life, God. Um, Help us be wise and not unwise. The days are evil, God. And um, we need hearts that are pointed towards the true north, that are pointed towards you. So, God, would you, would you be with us? And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.